0: Welcome back to another week of the NeuroDivergent Nurse. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to bring you a brand new episode this week because I am on vacation with my mom, with my dad in Helen, Georgia, celebrating her birthday. Spending time with the people that we love is so very important. This episode was first released in March of 2021, and February is Black History Month. So I hope that you take the time. Listen to this great episode with Dr. Kimberly Douglas as we talk about racial disparities when it comes to ADHD diagnosis. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to the NeuroDivergent Nurse. And on this episode, I have a wonderful, wonderful guest that I'm so honored to be here, Dr. Kimberly Douglas. And she's going to tell you a little bit about herself before we really dive into this content.
1: Hello, I'm Dr. Kimberly Douglas, and I'm excited to be here. I'm just—I'm always honored and flattered when people invite me to be on podcast on podcast with them, and this is no exception. So I'm—I'm I'm just really stoked to be here. So uh, my background is actually in academia. Most of my back—my work life—I've worked in academia, and I translated that into my own coaching slash systems building operation, I'm doing that full time now, where I support individuals who are neurodivergent, mainly adults. And so what that looks like, that looks like doing a lot of social deconstructing and supporting people in things that challenge them in in their personal lives, in their professional lives, in the community. Things that reduce the amount of shame that they experience in life on a day-to-day basis. And so I have a strong presence on TikTok. I was on Facebook, but Facebook's like, ah. But I have a strong presence on TikTok, and I'm Dr. Kimberly Douglas with two S's on TikTok. And then also I host a panel each week that's hosted by the Neurodiversity in the Workplace Club. And we talk about neurodivergence. And this week, we will be talking about designing spaces for people who have autism.
0: Mm, That sounds awesome. How did you really get into neurodivergence? Why was that
1: something that you were drawn to? Okay. So as with most people, it starts with a personal need. I have been an advocate for my son for over all his life. He's 15 now. But when he was in daycare and and in pre-K, it was clear to me that I was going to have to take on an advocacy role, not because of him, but because of the way things are constructed. And this went on for years up to the point of last year where I helped found a school that's based on project-based learning, which is his zone. It's where he really flourishes and he really thrives as a twice exceptional person. And so once I felt he was in a safe place and he was set up for success. And I started to notice some things about myself that I had not paid attention to. And here we are. <laughs> um, and I don't have, he has a diagnosis, but I don't have a formal diagnosis, but I am very clear about what my needs are. And diagnoses are very important because what they do is they give you access to things. However... I'm not one of these people that says, well, you, you have to have a diagnosis, but you want to make sure you have access to as many things as possible at the same time, trust the way you feel, trust that you do understand what it is you need.
0: Speaking of diagnosis, I I did, I think the very first episode for this, we're only maybe four deep into this new podcast. was about ADHD in women and Mm -hmm. girls, they are often not diagnosed until later in life. If they do get diagnosed later in life, and that's not uncommon. And Mm -hmm. even more so, which is what I want to talk about today are black women. And it's even more difficult for that community to receive a diagnosis.
1: Mm -hmm. Is that something
0: Mm -hmm. that you've recognized as well? This is something that I talk about in my lives.
1: And when we talk about things like the school to prison pipeline, we separate it in our minds from conversations about the fact that women often find out in the middle age that they have ADHD or they're on the spectrum. And they are middle income white women that this happens with. So let me talk about what makes those really the same experience in terms of getting the support that people need. First of all, I want to say that I was careful earlier to say that I mainly support adults when I started coaching. I started as a parent coach, but found the emotional weight of that to be more than I was equipped to handle at the time mm-hmm. because I was still working through some things personally uh, with my advocate, advocacy for my my own child. But I don't exclude that. And another reason why I'm making that point is because neurodivergence isn't your 17-year-minor, you're year you're 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 an adult. What we're really talking about is a continuum of poor services. And the fact that things are not recognized until your 30s and 40s is related to the fact that people enter pre-K with needs that don't get met. All of this is part of the same thing. It's not two separate systems. But I want to go back to the connection between the school-to-prison pipeline and the middle-age diagnosis. As long as there's a school-to-prison pipeline, we will have the issue with people not being diagnosed until they're middle-age. Because the common denominator is how we treat behavior. In both cases, what we're doing is we're separating the behavior from the need behavior communicates need. And in both cases, we're choosing to ignore the need. And in both cases, we are punishing the need. And let me explain a little bit more in detail what I'm saying. So with the school to prison pipeline, the shortest distance between school and prison is through special education. So we we know for a fact that people with disabilities are far more likely to end up in jail than other people in the school. And so, and that is especially the case with black boys, and increasingly with black girls. So, in that case, we're saying that we're looking at a behavior, and we're treating behavior solely as behavior. We're ignoring the context of that behavior. We're ignoring the fact that there's implicit bias in the school. We're ignoring some other systemic factors. We're ignoring the fact that people may not get diagnosis, or um, if they're in special kids, they have a di- usually they have a diagnosis, but They're they're not getting the support and the treatment that they need, or that just not having access to the resources within the school. And so the focus becomes on behavior. That's what people are taught when they go get degrees to show them how to teach and how to lead. The focus is on behavior. If you look at the curriculum, the curriculum shows you that what is most important is behavior and classroom management, as opposed to understanding what these needs are. It's right there in black and white. Um, so accrediting agencies, they show you what is most important is focusing on behavior and railroading people in a certain way. So in that instance, we are focusing on behavior separate from need. Now, when you look at a middle income white female who's in her forties and just now getting a diagnosis, it's still an issue of separating behavior from need. So when she was in high school and she was extremely performative, And there were things happening with her, but people ignored it because her behavior made them comfortable and she was compliant. Then the the need was ignored, although there were clear signs that she had some needs. And so in this case, the behavior is punishable because she knows she has to behave, behave a certain way. She has to mask in a certain way in order to avoid punishment. So that's how I connected to. Now you add to that, um, that you're a black female. Almost every day I'm talking to a black female, it's like, wait a minute, that's me. Or I just realized that I have traits that look very similar to ADHD. It's really tricky with black women because our experience in this country says that we are here to be consumed. And with ADHD, there's messages transmitted to us. I don't know if it's ADHD, but it's ADHD in a neurotypical world that transmits to us that, that we have to just burn, we have to mask, we have to exert. And you put that on top of a situation where organizations exploit Black women and over-consume Black women, that's a bad combination. That is a recipe for burnout and disaster in a number of ways.
0: I was just reading about earlier too, when you were talking about the pipeline. And another thing that I think is also important to be recognized is the amount of money that goes into school systems. You were talking about resources that schools use and how that better equips people for diagnosis.
1: Mm -hmm, But mm
0: -hmm. it is known that schools that are predominantly with Black children, they don't get as much money because of redlining, because of all of these things. There aren't the same funds that go into that education system. They're not equipped with people who know to direct those children towards a good, bad binary. You're being disruptive. Therefore, you're a bad kid. You're going to constantly go to the principal's office or you're discarded. You're going to get out of school suspension, you're not worthy of my time, instead of seeing that these are the signs, these are the flags that need to be looked into further.
1: Yeah, okay, so when people talk about flaws in the educational system, uh, we we look at the center of the action. Our attention is focused in the wrong place. It's, It's intentionally directed in the wrong place. So I see parents on TikTok putting teachers in their place. I see teachers on TikTok putting parents in their place. And all of it's misdirected because the adversarial relationship is constructed in the system. It is built into the system. Teachers are not (laughs) positioned to be to have the success they might want to have. And they're positioned to hold on to implicit bias and to not have the time. If you're busy prepping for a test and your merit depends upon test performance, Mm -hmm. then you're going to focus on the test. You're going to focus on rigidly uh, getting people here doing this in order to prepare for the test, which leaves very little room for you to make the kind of connection needed and have the time to connect with the child in a very meaningful way. So it's built in. It's built into the way teachers are educated. It's built into the standards. All of that is built in before a teacher or a parent ever meets each other. Mm-hmm
0: y'all if you like the show please consider joining the neurodivergent nurse podcast patreon it shows how much you care and it allows me to continue to produce these episodes week after week plus you get some awesome bonus episodes and some pretty great fan mail from time to time as a thank you and please please rate and review the more reviews the more attention And that increases the likelihood that other people who struggle with neurodivergency will be reached. If you're interested in joining the Patreon, go to patreon.com slash theneurodivergentnurse. Families have a lot going on.
1: You know, another way that that these relationships are baked in is through property tax. You mentioned how uh, housing and redlining. Mm -hmm. As long as school, as the, the foundational funding for school is through property taxes, these problems will persist. Because it is inherently racist. It is inherently discriminatory. If you can't live in a certain place, and you're relegated to a certain area of town where the housing is cheaper and yields lower property taxes and school is based on property taxes, then that is baked into the system. Um, And one other thing I want to say too, as part of having things baked into the system, it's a mentality also. So it's the institution, it's the systems, but it's also the people, it's cultural as well. When you think it's socially acceptable to have more school resource officers, then you have more counselors and social workers. Because councils and social workers are going to see certain things in a very different way mm-hmm. than a school resource officer. We know that when the police show up, black boys are far more likely to get into trouble for having needs. We, we know that that has been demonstrated, but we're really talking about what we value Do we really value education or are we still on this track? Our our school system, if you look at it for everybody, not just for Black children, is really modeled on the 1800s industrial needs. And that system was created to produce compliant factory workers. And I've heard people talk about the different tracks where certain schools are set up so that we... Um, the executive schools versus the, um, the worker schools and the school-to-prison pipeline schools where there's intention to direct people into certain places. I don't know enough to say that that is the case, but that has certainly been the result. And you can track that along the lines of property taxes in a certain community. But we're really talking about what we value Because what is happening here is we're creating artificial scarcity. And we're creating a situation where people are suffering that don't have to suffer. And we're saying that it is okay for them to suffer. And going back to the whole conversation about the school to prison pipeline and women being diagnosed in their 30s and 40s, here's the thing. As long as we allow institutions such as the school to prison pipeline to persist we are denying supports to people in other areas because we're showing what we value. We're showing what we value as a society. We're saying with the school to prison pipeline, we value trauma. We value allowing trauma to control the lives of people. We value it over here, which means we value it over here as well. So if it's okay for trauma to drive our decisions to be um, to impact people's lives, impact people's lives, we're saying it's okay for trauma to function in our society in this way.
0: It is absolutely acceptable. It and it's almost encouraged in a sense, which is mind-blowing if you if you just take off the blinders and you look yeah. a little bit deeper into it. It's not just school even though that is definitely a good place right. of origin because working in the medical field, I certainly know that there are racial and ethnic disparities across the entire healthcare spectrum. Mm -hmm. Just for example, black men and women statistically have an increase in heart disease and diabetes genetically that increases their risk of death. But then whenever we get into mental health, which is already terrible in our system, in our country, we don't embrace and we don't look at the need for help with mental health our brain is an organ too that really needs to be focused on but there's a lot of disparities in mental health care as well and even though they're more subtle the consequences aren't less serious you still have depression you have suicide you have death and so all of those are increased while we completely disregard black women, it it increases their chances of dying because we yeah, ignore
1: it. Absolutely. This past summer I co-authored a book with someone we it's called You Are the Revolution. And you can link to it through my Gunroad account uh, through TikTok. You can link through it to through TikTok. And one of the underlying ideas in that book is that during this pandemic, what we need to do for Black children, we don't need to worry about freaking learning loss. And if I hear that one more time, I'm going to scream. We don't need to worry about that. We don't need to worry about test scores. What we need to worry about, or not worry, what we need to do is to wrap a cocoon around Black children. Because there is trauma happening on multiple levels, with being off their routines, with uh, with the pandemic, with the racial disparities that they experience on a regular basis, they will catch up. The other thing is, we're always learning. Just because we're not learning what is on the test, it doesn't mean that we're not learning. And to say that is a little insulting, because you can't tell me that a 12-year-old who was responsible for their eight-year-old and six-year-old siblings and making sure the siblings got online and took their classes and they had something to eat. You can't tell me that that person didn't learn something in in this past year or so. So when you go back to the classroom, you talk about it as a deficit when we actually should be celebrating it.
0: I love that so much i I just had a conversation with a nursing supervisor, and she was mm-hmm. talking about certain populations of people and that difficulty and her focus was what you just said that it was it was not focused on really what those children learned and the responsibilities right. that they learned and the care right. and the importance they put on other people i I myself didn't think of that in the conversation that's that's really incredible and beautiful
1: and and it's interesting because. We know the other stuff that they're learning has not prepared them for the 21st century. Mm-hmm. The schools weren't prepared for the 21st century. They're still not. They're still not. Mm-mm. So stop it. What they had to do was go home and face real life. And in the 21st century, it's not about information, it is about the information experience. It is about grabbing information from here because people. Talk about us being in the information age we are no longer in the information age we are in the experience age or the experiential age where it's about taking information um, so google and other web browsers resolve the issue of information you can get just about everything you need or you can get it in the future if you have the right access money or whatever but it's about taking these different pieces and creating meaning and that's what we have to show them how to do It's not about taking a test. It's about project-based learning that engages them and uh, engages their curiosity. They drive the conversation. Feeding your siblings is project-based learning. Helping them log onto Zoom is project-based learning. We have to reframe this whole thing because what I see people are insistent upon is creating a deficit framework for these kids. Because somebody told me the other day, that their school officials believe that um, certain kids, impoverished, quote unquote impoverished mm-hmm. kids, and kids in special education can't do project-based learning. And I, my very natural hair was almost relaxed, straightened, because it made me so. It made my blood pressure go up. Because what is showing me is that the power dynamics are being recreated with some very silly notions. And and the way that they were thinking about this whole thing was not even based on the child's curiosity, which is the, the, the underpinning of project based on it. But I wanna go back to something else you were talking about, the health disparities. And we know that this is an issue for Black Americans I wanna direct everybody's attention to you, and I'm sure you know about this, Jamie, the adverse childhood experience studies, or they call them the ACEs studies. When I heard about these in 2015, it just made my mind explode because it made things so very complete in a way, and it gave me language to talk about things that had happened in my own life. And what we know from, from all these different studies related to the ACEs is that these experiences with childhood trauma we know we see the connection with lung disease heart disease depression and just for people who are unfamiliar with the aces it started as a 10 question inventory of adverse childhood experiences and has expanded to include racism because of living under racism itself is an adverse childhood experience mm-hmm. but just to give you some examples if you had a parent who was abusing or someone in your household is abusing substances growing up, if you had an absent parent, a parent in prison, if you witnessed or heard or experienced domestic violence, if you were sexually assaulted, um, so uh, drugs, alcohol, there, there are several others and people have extended the list as well. Those things are not without consequence. and and not just mental health consequences, but they manifest as physical challenges, physical disease. And this is, this is very important, especially you talk about black men and black women and feeling like we need to be the drivers. We need to take care of things. We need to get things done. There is a cost for being over-consumed.
0: Just as you were talking about this, I have a a friend that I worked with uh, and he was talking about, he's, he's a black man, tall. He works out all the time. Uh, He's a respiratory therapist at a local hospital here. He was talking about his situation, trying to get an Uber and how, whenever his picture would pop up that he would be canceled. I haven't experienced that and I've used Uber and Lyft a lot. And that association to me too, I thought there is a genetic link between increased in, in hypertension, high blood pressure, and heart disease, there is a genetic link with black Americans. I believe that it's also because of society and all that these people have had to experience that like that we white Americans have put on them. These are just little chips away and it all accumulates. And as you said, it all manifests in a physical, way as well and in, in healthcare so it's not just physicians misdiagnosing or throwing people into this category but it's also what we do as a society that impacts negatively the health
1: and and the lifeline yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of times when we have this conversation we talk about the effect but we don't talk about how it's happening yes. and how it's happening is why doctors ignore us or they don't take us seriously, there is a therapist on TikTok, and she goes by Leslie P-S-Y-D. You may follow her. And Leslie, she put together a conversation about different studies about diagnosis. And so I responded to that by asking her, how does this look in terms of Black boys? I think it was Black boys I asked about specifically, and she was saying that there is evidence that the instruments themselves are biased. Absolutely. Look at a pulse oximeter. Exactly. Right. Right. And so, and also when, if I'm a black boy and I'm being evaluated by a white male who is suspicious of me, I then return that I'm suspicious of that person. And so it changes the diagnosis or if I'm going into this as a, um, a white practitioner and somebody's telling me that they have fears about something, they seem paranoid, but actually it's happening in their lives. So it creates all kinds of issues with diagnosis, and there is underdiagnosis, which means that people don't get the supports that they need. And here's what diagnosis does. And I know people are concerned and I, I know you're sharing this with different audiences. So I wanna say this explicitly. I understand the concern about being diagnosed and labeled with something. The issue is diagnosis is, is the gateway to receiving any, most supports. So that is an access issue. But here's the other thing you cannot have a diagnosis and be labeled something else. Mm-hmm. So, at least on paper, you have a framework that allows you access to certain things. And I know with the military, people don't want to have a record of having autism. You are a whole person today, even if you're six years old. You are a whole person who deserves quality of life today. If you are concerned about being able to get into the military, I understand that and people's situations are different, but you or aunt, or your child, your whole people today. And I wanna say this before I forget, it's interesting how we do in this society, we tend to chop people up. And you mentioned something earlier and I can't remember exactly what it was, but I wanna say that if you come to the understanding about ADHD or some other form of neurodivergence through the medical system, then it's treated like a medical issue. If it comes through as as the education system, it's treated like an educational issue. Um, Through mental health, it's treated like a mental health issue. And what happens is that you get chopped up in all these ways, and either you or your parent has the responsibility of trying to bring all these narratives together which means you have a second job essentially.
0: Yes, you are absolutely right. And and I want to go back to when you were talking about the diagnosis and in childhood, there were a couple studies that I looked at and the rate of ADHD in children that they were diagnosed was about 9.5% during this one study, 11.5% of white children were diagnosed with ADHD, and for Black children was only 8.9%. It doesn't sound like much, but that is a significant difference if you really consider the population of children. And then in 2013, they did a study of over 17,000 U.S. children. By the eighth grade, Black children were 69% less likely to receive a diagnosis of ADHD than white children. And so you think, okay, eighth grade is when this is going back to you saying you're whole, whether you're six years old, whether you're 36 years old. So 69% large, large discrepancy, right? Well, in 2014, they went a step further. So in kindergarten, they were 70% less likely to be diagnosed than white children too. So it's it's not just a later in life you get that it's more difficult. These children, even in kindergarten, there's such a huge disparity between the two ethnicity and races because of physicians or access i mean there's a lot of reasons why i talked to a woman who sent me a message she's in her mid 20s and she was saying hey i've watched a lot of your videos and stuff and i'm i'm really certain that i have this how do i go about a diagnosis all i could do was share this is the route that i went this is the information that i have and i sent her more information but she went a couple steps further to talk about with her family, that they were going to see that as a weakness. And as I continue to read, again, this isn't my experience, but I'm learning that with Black women, not only is it more difficult to get diagnosed, but it's also difficult to seek that diagnosis because of the community in itself and
1: family. Right, absolutely. And what I'm seeing, so it's probably the family system, but it's also connected to church, which is, a re, which is a system that reinforces behaviors in other systems. And so there are people who just don't believe that ADHD exists. I don't care what you call it. What I am concerned about is that there's a set of needs that you have that are not being addressed. You can call it water bottle if you want to, but there are aspects of church that encourage black women to allow themselves to be overconsumed and to run themselves in the ground and it is reinforcing to how um, things play out at work and it's reinforced by the health care system and it's reinforced by experiences in education because it all starts with a deficit frame in church sometimes you're built up as a person who can do a lot of things but a lot of times it's the shame that comes with not performing as as well. So you, and there are two sides of the same coin, but in either case, it's a deficit framework. It's not giving it's giving the best parts of yourself for something that's not giving you anything back. And so here's a way to frame all of it. It really is about framing. So we look at education, look at healthcare and you look at religion, in any given situation, Do you have more responsibility in that situation than you do authority? And that is a question that's relevant to each one of those domains.
0: Can you expand on that a little bit, that question in itself?
1: Yeah, so if you go to a church and it's mostly females and there's a male pastor and you're responsible for making the programming happen, you're responsible for vacation Bible school, for example, but he can come in, and change everything with a magic wand. In that domain, you don't have the authority that you need to make things function. So you're responsible for paying your money, but the people who are making decisions about where the money goes, they're all men. The officers of the church are all men. So in education, there's a, a, there's a professor, at he was at the Teachers Columbia Teachers College. I don't know if he's still there. His name is Chris Edmund. And he talks about the pretty brown girl syndrome, where you have a female, black female student who's attractive. She goes to a school where it's considered to have behavioral issues. She shows up. She she's quiet. She doesn't cause any problems. So she gets passed along because she makes the adults comfortable. But then she gets to college and she's in for a shock because she's not really been taught anything, but she's been rewarded for behavior that makes it easier for other people. And in that situation, she had the responsibility of behaving, but she had no authority in the situation to say, I need to be taught in the situation or I need to be able to express my needs in the situation. And same thing with healthcare. You go in and you have the responsibility. You're too fat. You don't have the right BMI. You shouldn't eat that. But you don't have the authority to say, well, I live next to a landfill. And these are problems, some things that were passed on to me by my grandmother and my mother. And you're not an authority figure in that space. People are not listening to you. So in any situation, if the responsibility outweighs the authority, that is an imbalance that is deadly for us.
0: I feel like even if you take that a step further, a lot of people with ADHD, we also have exceptional sensitivity to judgment towards us, too. That makes it even worse. I am a white female. And when I go to my doctor's appointment, I still feel like an imposter. I still Mm -hmm. fear that they're gonna think that I I pulled the wool over their eyes for this diagnosis, even though I feel better. So when women and especially black women, I would assume when you go into those situations and people treat you and they tell you, no, that's not the case. it's, It's hard often to stand up to that point of authority because a lot of times, whenever you stand firm, there's such a negative impact that you're
1: completely dismissed altogether then. Yeah, there's a whole launch sequence of when you decide, no, this doesn't feel right to me. Where what often happens is the person takes it personally, then we become responsible for protecting their feelings. Mm-hmm. So now we're no longer centered to the conversation anymore. Yes, it is really difficult. And one of the ways, and this happens in every one of those domains that I mentioned is the use of language. When you're face-to-face with a doctor or nurse practitioner, they have the power of language because they have the expertise in that space. They're presumed to have the expertise in that space. But you have the expertise about you and nobody ever says that. If you're having a negative experience at school, you are still the expert on you. The principal are presumed to be the experts in that space, but you know what kind of experience you're having.
0: While I agree completely with that, it's so hard when you get poured into, when you get all this negativity poured on you, right? Like like you were saying with school or a physician. So if, if you know something is not... Right, if you know there's a disconnect, if you know you check these boxes from your personal experience, but every quote specialist that you go to who they are educated on this, that they completely dismiss you, which could be based on your skin color. At some point, you start to accept that from the experts when you hear it so often. It's just like if you're in a relationship and your your, your partner tells you that you are a slob, that you're lazy, which are things that ADHD people in general hear very often from many people that they love. You start to believe that that is who you are because that is what you are receiving. That's what you're hearing and you're interpreting. How do you think that that can be removed from the core of the input that you have?
1: So I just thought about something as you were talking. Um, First of all, for me personally, I don't accept it. But that doesn't mean that other people do, don't, you know, that hasn't affected other people in that way. But but I'd say that eat just as much or more than accepting it. You just get tired. You know, you just get worn down by it because it's constant, it's a thousand paper cuts. And there's a cost benefit analysis that you do about whether or not it's worth it to fight back because you get tired. So they talk about um, battle fatigue. Right. Yes. But the thing I just thought about is for every black woman and perhaps any woman, but certainly black women who is seeking a diagnosis or seeking clarity. So I don't even say seeking a diagnosis. I say seeking clarity Mm -hmm. because there could be a diagnosis there or not. But the point, because that's not really the point. The point really is what are my needs and how do I take care of my needs? And if a diagnosis allows me to take care of my niece, then that's, I I need a diagnosis. But if we're seeking clarity about ADHD, about autism, about bipolar disorder, any of these things, we should always take somebody with us. That's hard for a lot of people because there's a lot of doubt around them. But even if it means we have to hire somebody, we should take some, we should never go to these appointment these types of appointments alone. It may drag out the process a little bit longer, but I'm just sitting here thinking about just in this moment, how that shifts the dynamics in the room.
0: Yes, I absolutely agree with that because me just, just being a nurse and even bedside. Mm-hmm. So I see myself as a great nurse. Uh, worked in neuro ICU for almost a decade before I switch to rapid response, you mind your P's and Q's in a sense more when you know that there is, when there are two interpretations, two potential right. interpretations to be. Right. And again, like I'm not a cut corners type of person, but just the mentality of the person that is caring for you, the mentality of the person who is trying to help you, the connection in the dynamic definitely changes during that time and and even even the effort in a sense I feel like would change because if you know that not only is this when it's one-to-one it's a little bit softer in a sense Mm -hmm. like you have a little bit more authority is not even the right word but you have a little bit more um strict guidelines of no I'm not going to do this authority but when you have the significant other at the bedside saying, no, I'm telling you, she's in pain, go get her medicine or call the doctor. You're going to jump a little bit faster when you have two people demanding the same thing and right. or, or requesting the same thing.
1: It empowers in terms of shifting the dynamics, but it also empowers you as the patient internally, because it allows you to step back And you know, within this larger context of care or or within this context of care, within this room, you are, there's another bubble around you, another bubble of care around you.
0: And support. There is someone that believes you. There is someone that validates all the things that you have to say. And so you
1: have more courage in that situation to stand up as well. Right. And it goes back to something I was saying earlier, you are the expert in that room on you.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: what that person does is puts a bubble around you, you know, puts a buffer between the two of you and behind that buffer, you can be the expert about you and they can step into your space, but they have to step into your space in a very different way. If there's somebody else there,
0: what other tips do you have for women to really find the resources because a a lot of times if during COVID-19, I, Mm -hmm. I was able to provide a lot of information through social media, family, friends, whatever, right? Because I knew the correct resources. There wasn't Fox News, CNN, whatever, right? Like I I know how to put my fingers on medical journals and to know that these scholarly articles are the ones to trust versus mainstream anything. So how do people who don't know how to go about finding resources, what do you think is the best first step or second step?
1: So on TikTok, I talk a lot about the information experience and there's a specific video I have uh, that people can go look at and people map their experiences getting to this information. So there's a lot of help there and there are a lot of good resources on TikTok. One of the things I'm doing is working on bringing things together so that people don't have to go on a scavenger hunt, really creating, giving you the right search terms in web browsers, some very basic things like that. One of the things I'm working on is, um, is what I'm calling the ND collaboration, but with emphasis on lab. I want to see more of us creators and providers work together to create TikToks so that people can see the different entry rates. For example, I posted something yesterday about um, improv and you know an improv saying, you know the way you build a scene is yes and. when you say no, but the scene breaks down. And a person who is an improv director, somewhere she jumped on there and she said, this would be really good for people who have ADHD. And I was like, hold up. Wait a minute. That's laced with assumptions. How about it would be good training for people who are neurotypical to communicate with people who are neurodivergent? How about that? Mm-hmm. Like, that was a good idea. So there's a woman on TikTok who talks about the neurodivergent, neurotypical, neurotypical exchange. And I would love to work with her to put together a video where we talk about something like this improv. And I've done collaborations like this before, and I'll go back, come bring it full circle to your question. There's a woman whose work I really appreciated, uh, really appreciate. She does presents information on African relics and African history and African American history, and she and I partnered to do a series of five videos. And it was we sh- so good. Oh, you like that? Where, mm-hmm. where uh, the representation of neurodivergence in Afrofuturism? And when I say, and and it doesn't get as many looks as my dance videos, which I rarely dance, but that's okay. Because when I look at the engagement of those videos, it's much different than my other videos. It is a much deeper level of engagement and interest and appreciation Mm -hmm. by people. And so she and I talked about Octavia Butler's parable of the sower, where I talked about neurodivergence generally. And then she talked about how it applied to the book. And when I think about just Everything I've done on TikTok, I think that series is, is, is one of the things that I'm the most proud. And so, what I want to do is bring people together, show them how to collaborate to do things like that, so people can start to see where the connections are, and it's not a mystery. And I want just like I did it with her, I want to do it with therapists and nurses, and I want to do it with musicians and artists, so that this becomes part of. A single conversation where we're addressing the needs of a whole person. Now to go back to your question, um, there's lots of information uh, on the web and it's really difficult to figure out what's legitimate, what is uh, authoritative. I would advise people to check out some of the therapists on TikTok because TikTok is a self-cleaning oven. Yes, there are some things that stick and you just can't scrape them out but what usually happens when people give out bad information on TikTok and in this, in other communities, people swoop in and they correct it very quickly. Yes, they, they do. not afraid to do so. So just know that you have that layer of protection, having, and it's information, it's, but it's information experience because it's the information plus the community. Then I would start with my primary care physician. And if you don't, if they turn a deaf ear, then consult with your insurance company, see who's in your network in terms of a psychologist or psychiatrist or therapist. And then you may have to enter in different ways, but just going back to our conversation a few minutes ago, who can be your advocate? And it may be that nobody can be, nobody in your family can be your advocate. But one of the worst things I think you can do is try to drag people along with the conversation because it is going to create an extra layer of stress trying to convince people. Because remember, look how long it took you to be convinced that there was something happening with you. So imagine you're stepping outside, you're standing outside of me and you and I've had similar values and I've decided to change. I can't necessarily bring you along with me. And so that becomes an emotional labor. So don't drag anybody along in the conversation Find an advocate and somebody who can really support you and go to appointments. And now we're doing telehealth. So go to the tele- sit in on the Zoom session. A lot of the information experience surrounding these diagnoses is very isolating and alienating. First of all, because you are working with these traits in a neurotypical world. So there's you and what you're experiencing. And then on top of that, you now have had to turn into a detective or an academic and get all this information. So it's very isolating. You don't know how to evaluate the information. You don't know what it means necessarily. You don't know what's too much. You don't know what's too little. So again, all of these aspects of it are isolating. So that's why it's important to have an advocate and someone, if nothing else, who will just sit and listen. But you need to know who is not going to be your advocate. Now, there are some churches that are progressive and assist families in this way. But if you know that people at your church are not going to be supportive, you don't need to get up and give a a testimony about it. Don't, just don't do it. Just do not do it. You're setting yourself up for problems. And also this is a self-discovery process. Everybody doesn't have the right to have access to what you're going through. They haven't earned the right to be a part of this conversation and they haven't earned the right to be part of the decision-making process.
0: I feel like sometimes that can be difficult because a lot of people who have ADHD, we overshare. You, you get, you get so excited because you finally, yes like yes. whether you're at the beginning of your discovery that you are not these negative things that even if no one else told you that your entire life, you told right. yourself that.
1: Exactly. exactly. And no, I, get it. I totally get it. I totally it's get it's it. such
0: a difficult thing. Like everyone I work with know it. And I, I may say, I'm sorry, my meds haven't kicked in yet. I'm a little disconnected right. or, and People don't always take just like that. Even at work, I work in healthcare, and not everybody, they see that as a problem. I don't, you know, when you, when you don't have that confidence yet in who you
1: are. No, absolutely. Like this, that, that is the paradox here. It really is. is. It's a situation that makes you want to share all this. So that's why it's important to really think about a support system, even if you have to pay for a support system, if you can pay for it. And I realize everybody can't. And so that means, Jamie, that you and I need to start talking about what these support systems are gonna look like. We have to start because I'm I'm a design thinker and I'm designing a world in which neurodivergent individuals feel like they belong. Mm -hmm. That's when I think about all the things that I'm doing, that's what I'm doing. And so one of the things I'm really good at is seeing the gaps. And this is a huge gap for people. And I want to go back to this thing about, about sharing and, and your man's not kicked in yet. <laughs> Just because you did, okay, for, so first of all, you may be comfortable with that and, and it's okay for you. It's, it's okay for you. But if you're in a situation where there's a, it's, it's riddled with shame to start with, mm-hmm. you have to find a way, find supports, so that you have a place because what you're going to do is you're going to keep setting yourself up for rejection and to and, and we know the rejection is a big part of this, but I want to say this also, just because you did something yesterday, it doesn't mean you have to do it that way today. And you can and even if you overshare yesterday or shared I mean it's whatever it is, today you can decide not to if you see that it's not working for you. And that's okay. And you don't owe them any explanation and there are boundaries and they need to give you room to be okay in this new version of yourself.
0: And I, I I just think there's so much beauty in finally understanding the new version of yourself too. There's so much liberation in that as well. I just, I really appreciate you taking the time to to come and sit and be on this podcast and take away two hours from your day. And yeah, it, it's been so enlightening for me as well. And I I hope and I pray that this reaches a lot of people that is also enlightening for. And your your TikTok that we briefly touched on is it's so encouraging. And I I love coming across it. I get bits of motivation and hope. And it's there's so much warmth that comes from it. So anyone listening to this podcast, if you use TikTok at all. Dr. Douglas is someone that you you have to be sure that you follow and you look for her content all the time because she she helps bring light to even a dark day. Can you tell everyone again where they can
1: find you sure. on TikTok? Absolutely. Thank you and and again thank you for bringing me on here. I'm Dr. Kimberly Douglas and Douglas is spelled with two S's on TikTok. And you know my over our message is that you are okay you're you're fine but you may have challenges there may be things that you want help working through but you're not flawed you are just you if there's a different way you want to live then find people to help you do that as to the extent that you can but you're okay you're you're fine so let's just start there beautiful however there's a
0: great community of people there's a great support system even online
1: Mm -hmm.
0: so again if you're listening this I just like Dr. Douglas has advised you find those people even online to be that place where you're seen, where you're heard, and you feel that value because you are valuable every single day on your bad days, on your good days, on the days that you just can't get off the couch and, and pick up the stuff. It's, it's okay. It is all okay. Okay. So I just want to thank you again. So, so very much for being here. And I, I enjoyed it. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like it and share it with those that could benefit from it as well. And be sure to rate it five stars on your favorite listening platforms so more people can be exposed to this show. Have a great week.